How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. For the flower fades and the grass withers, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this evening, we'll take a few moments for a silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9 if necessary, and then uh, we'll begin. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening. We thank you for the clarity it gives us, the framework it gives us to investigate life, to understand life, and interpret the details of the creation around us. Now, Father, as we continue our study on creation and evolution, we pray that you would help us to understand these things, that our faith may be strengthened and we might be encouraged. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, before we get started in the heavy stuff this evening... I wanted to give you a little new vocabulary, test your vocabulary, give you some new words this evening. Every year the Washington Post has a, has a contest called the Washington Post Style Invitational and asks readers to take any word from the dictionary and to alter it by just adding, subtracting, or changing only one letter and then giving it a new definition. Here are the 2002 winners. They took the word intoxication and changed it to intaxication. Intoxication is euphoria at getting a tax refund, which lasts until you realize it was your money to start with. The next word's rein. They took the word reincarnation and changed the C to a T, so it's reincarnation, and that's coming back to life as a hillbilly. By adding the letter I to graffiti, they come up with giraffiti, which is vandalism painted very, very high. Sarcasm, spelled with a C-H, as in S-A-R-C-H-A-S-M, is the gulf between the author of sarcastic wit and the person who doesn't get it. Carmageddon, it's like, well, when everybody is sending off all these really bad vibes, right? And then, like, the earth explodes, and it's like a serious bummer. That's Carmageddon. So that should, uh, that should take care of that. Okay. We've been studying creation and evolution in our study on Genesis. And last time we saw that evolution is based on six assumptions. These assumptions were listed by an evolutionist by the name of G.A. Kirkut. He's a neo-Darwinian evolutionist, and he recognizes the reality of the lack of evidence for evolution. He listed as the first assumption that non-living things gave rise to living material, that is, spontaneous generation occurred. This has never, ever been observed. It's never been producible in a laboratory under any number of controlled experiments. It was first demonstrated to be impossible by Louis Pasteur. For an example, you think about a can of sardines. Now, a can of sardines is an open system. That means that anything can still enter into that. Energy goes into it. Light can go into it. Heat can go into it. But no new species come out of that can of sardines. For any new species to come out of that, that system, it, not just anything can be introduced, but something uh, teleonomic. That means it has plan, it has concept, it has intelligence, it has information, basically. Something teleonomic has to be introduced into that system. Something has to come from outside. 
Uh, spontaneous generation cannot occur unless there is the introduction of new information from outside. How can matter, just raw matter, organize itself into some kind of working machine, which any cell is? It's a, it's a machine. There's a, there's a system to the organization of the proteins and the amino acids. And how can matter organize itself into a machine if matter itself knows of no organization? The very idea of random chance in time argues against the idea of organization. The second assumption we saw was that spontaneous generation occurred only once. For this to have started at all, a language or a genetic code would have had to rise by chance. You see, when Darwin wrote this, the idea, the, all the knowledge we have about genetics and DNA and uh, an information theory that we've developed with, with computers over the last 20 or 30 years was completely unknown. So that in order for spontaneous generation to occur at all, a language, some kind of genetic code would have to rise by chance, and, and that the idea of a complicated code coming out by chance is just impossible, as we saw uh, last time. Since this could have only happened once, according to their theory... It cannot be repeated by definition. Therefore, it's non-repeatable, and by definition, it can't be scientific unless it can be repeated and studied in the classroom. Therefore, nothing can be accepted as scientific under these conditions. This is nothing more than an assumption with no facts to support it whatsoever. Third assumption is that viruses, bacteria, plants, and animals are all related to one another and derived from one another. Now, this would mean that the genetic program of one species can change into the genetic program for another species. By trying to input information from one to the other through point mutations, that is, controlled, targeted mutations, uh, that only can reduce the genetic program to chaos. If you have random mutations, it, it completely destroys everything. But if you try even controlled point mutations, the genetic program is reduced to chaos, and we'll say more about mutations later. But point mutations imply some sort of control and design being introduced from the outside. Then fourth, the idea that protozoa, that is single cell life forms, gave rise to metazoa. The key for that theory, I mean the key for evolutionary theory and Darwinian theory, is to produce genetic change, not cellular change. All that is is a shift from one cell creature to a multi-cell creature, and you have to produce significant genetic change to get any kind of species-to-species transformation. And then the last two points, the fifth assumption, that various invertebrate phyla are interrelated, and the sixth point, that invertebrates gave rise to the vertebrates, are all based on nothing more than raw assumptions. Now, tonight what I want to focus on is three things, monkeys, men, and mutations. Monkeys, men, and mutations, because we've all opened up Time Life books, we've opened up National Geographic, and we've opened up the big chart, and we've seen the whole list of various man-like and ape-like creatures that are allegedly the predecessors, the missing links in the development of the human race, how First, they, they begin to walk a little more upright. And you always see all the pictures. They're very hairy and they're thick-lipped. And all of these different kinds of primordial features are present in the early versions. But the thing is, whenever they discover remains of the alleged early creatures, those remains are just a skull fragment or a jawbone or a tooth. They have no idea what the fleshy parts of a man would look like. And so 98% of what you see in those artistic diagrams are nothing more than the artist's imagination. It has nothing to do with scientific fact. No one ever has a picture of what a Australopithecine looked like. They just have a few skull fragments. Nobody has a picture of what a, a Ramapithecine looked like. They just have a few skull fragments. Everything else is pure, pure guesswork. So we have to realize that with the development of the theory of evolution back in the 19th century, much was made of finding the missing link. Where is the missing link? Well, we can't, don't know because it's missing. 
There's no evidence of any linkage whatsoever. This is one of the things that honest paleontologists admit is that if the theory is true, there ought to be links found in the uh, in the strata in the fossils, but no links are found, and they admit that. We will. I'm not going to cover fossils in this three-session series on creation evolution. I'm going to wait and do the analysis of fossils and a few other topics when we get to the worldwide flood of Noah in Genesis chapter 6. Now, with the development of the theory of evolution back in the 19th century, we saw that this, this whole extrapolation of these series of early men and the idea of Stone Age men and having them as predecessors to full uh, homo sapien uh, human beings put a lot of pressure on Christians. And so there were various accommodationist theories that were set forth in the 19th century, such as progressive creationism, the day-age view, and the what, what I call the classic gap view that came from <clears throat> Thomas Chalmers and made popular by uh, uh, Pember. It was that view that hijacked an older view that there was a time lapse between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2, and then they tried to fit you know, 45,000 years into that gap. At least that's what it was when Chalmers wrote. By the end of the 19th century, it was a few million years, but they had already committed themselves and made a mistake. They felt like they, that they were taking scientific conclusions as fact, and they were nothing more than guesswork. So they looked at all of these creatures that were allegedly human beings or seemed like uh, some sort of missing link. They were trying to figure out where to put them, so they came up with this idea that there must have been some sort of pre-Adamic race that existed before Genesis 1-2. They had human bodies. They might have had some means of communication or something, but they didn't have a full human soul. Now, the problem with that is it, it lends itself to the view that God's kind of experimenting, and it's not until Genesis 1:26 to 28 that God finally... Uh, after the death of hundreds of thousands or millions of these creatures, comes up with a final plan. So that has negative implications for one's view of God. Few people are willing to admit that. That's usually what we find in this is that you have to be extremely humble when you come to the Scriptures and not let arrogance dominate. But we learn that arrogance is tenacious, and that's really the theme for tonight, is the tenacity of arrogance in evolution. Because there is no evidence of any missing link, no evidence of any kind of pre-human trail whatsoever, even though there's a tremendous amount of propaganda out there in, in uh, biology textbooks, in time life books, in uh, all kinds of uh, national parks that you go to. You see the pictures of the different uh, kinds of, of people. So I just want to go through a list tonight of some of these alleged predecessors and give you the true story on these so-called early men and find out where did they come from? Where does stone, the Stone Age man fit in the biblical picture? Well, the first one we'll look at is Java man called Pithecanthropus. Java man. Found in Java, the Time Life editors in their book, The First Men, call these definitely human and definitely old. Notice they call them definitely human and definitely old. Java Man was discovered in September of 1891 by Eugene Dubois when he found a single ape-like tooth. Notice, a single ape-like tooth. That was in September. In October, in the same general location, but three feet from the first find, he discovered another tooth three feet away. In November, another three feet from the second tooth, he discovered a skull impression in a rock mass. Not the skull, but the impression of a skull in a fossil in a rock mass. And then, then that winter, the river flooded the site and digging stopped. It was not until the next year, in August of 1892, that they returned to the site and some 50 feet, that's like the distance from here to probably the street, they discovered a femur, part of the, part of the leg. They discovered a femur. Now, Dubois confidently announced that he had discovered the missing link. This is Java Man, the link between apes and man. But within this same area, roughly the size of this church, 
Within this same area were discovered bones from deer, primitive elephant, pig, tigers, hyena, crocodile, and rhinoceros. So it was a virtual graveyard of all kinds of bones. And how would you be able to discern that these ape-like teeth, two of them, and this skull impression were the same individual? Now, in a separate find, von Königswald, a a German anthropologist, found five skull fragments which were later identified with that same group. But now they are declared to be, by time life, definitely human and definitely old. They're just old Homo sapien remnants. They are not ape at all. There's no missing link there. So Java man is not in the connection. Then the next one is Peking Man. Peking Man is also called Synanthropus and part of Homo erectus. Homo erectus was, is really a loose term designation for something that's, that's pretty much Homo sapien, but, but we're going to knock them down a little bit because they hold the possibility that they were some sort of, of uh, connection. But for all practical purposes, they are part of the Homo uh, genus. Now, Peking Man was discovered in Peking by W.D. Pei, who was uh, aided by Pierre Teilhard de Chardin. Pierre Teilhard de Chardin. And one of the things that we have to be careful of here is who this guy, Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, is. This guy is one of the spookiest guys in the history of Christianity and the history of the 20th century. He was a Jesuit priest, but many New Agers go back to just worship him, read his writings. Uh, he is uh, foundational in, in many of the avant-garde, post-modernist background type of thinking. And he was also implicated, as we'll see in a minute, in the hoax of the of Piltdown Man. So the very fact that uh, uh, Teilhard de Chardin was involved with the Peking Man at all ca- cast da- doubts of accuracy on Peking Man. This guy is just just downright spooky. You know, people in this in uh, the world tend to think about people like Adolf Hitler and Saddam Hussein and others like that as being demon-possessed. It's the wacko intellectuals that are out there on the postmodern New Age left, like Deschardins, who are the real candidates, in my opinion, for demon possession, because these are the ones who are introducing such fallacious ideas into uh, the culture of the West. So nevertheless, this uh, he was an associate of, of Pays in Peking, and they found a total of 40 men, women, and children's parts. This was the allegation because uh, there's a lot of differences in the, in the records. For example, one anthropologist named Janice writes that they labeled, described, photographed, and categorized the casts of the 175 fossil fragments that had been collected. Now, the reason we go back to the photographs is because in... In World War II, when the Japanese, or actually in the 30s, when the Japanese were invading China, all evidence of Peking Man was destroyed. Nobody knows. There's a big search, but nobody has a clue. Nobody's seen it since the 1930s, so it's all guesswork. So Janus writes that there were some 175 fossil fragments that were collected in relationship to uh, Peking Man. Then he writes that those 175 fossil fragments were composed of five skulls, 150 jaw fragments and teeth, nine thigh bones and fragments, two upper arm bones, a collarbone, and a wrist bone. Now another anthropologist, Johansson, who's writing in his book on the history of, he really writes his book about Lucy the, Lucy the Australopithecine, but he says that there were at at uh, a, a Peking man only five. There were he agrees that there were five skulls, but instead of 150 jaw fragments, he says there were 15 smaller pieces of the skull or face, 14 lower jaws, and 152 teeth. So no one can even agree what the evidence consisted of for Peking man. Other skulls were the the evidence though from the pictures is that the skulls were crushed from behind and the brains were probably be removed were probably removed for food and there's pretty much agreement 
among anthropologists now, and I'm talking about evolutionists, that Peking man was probably not human but was killed and eaten by humans. And this has become more of the accepted view in recent years. Then we come to um, Heidelberg man. Heidelberg man. Uh, this was discovered at Mauer in Germany and consisted of a single fragment, a jawbone of lar- large proportions and human teeth. A jawbone of large proportions and human teeth. So you have one big jawbone and the teeth are clearly human. Today he is ex- considered an example of Homo erectus, so he is in the Homo genus according to Time Life uh, books. However, Johansson, who I mentioned earlier, and Edie in their book, Lucy, The Beginnings of Humankind, state that, quote, his finder recognized that he was a man and thus belonged in the genus Homo, but decided to put him in a species of his own. So it was just pure guesswork. The original uh, discoverer of this one jawbone fragment wanted to be known for discovering a new species. So Heidelberg man doesn't fit in the chain. Then there's... um, Then there is Piltdown Man. Piltdown Man is a fascinating story of how uh, the gullible are easily duped. This was uh, allegedly discovered by a man named Charles Dawson in 1912. But in 1954, it was discovered to have been a hoax. Pierre Teilhard de Chardin was associated with Dawson uh And the next year in discovering, going back to the same site, and they discovered a tooth that was buried in that site. So he is also implicated in putting forth this this hoax. The jaw was the jaw of an orangutan that they treated with acid, stained uh, stained the skull, and the teeth were filed down. And then the jaw of this orangutan was attached to a human cranium. Now, 1954 was admitted that this was a hoax. As late as 1969, Harvard Press was still publishing books. This is uh, 15 years after it's been admitted that it's a hoax. Harvard Press is still publishing books affirming the legitimacy of Piltdown Man and the human background. And furthermore, in 1970, I was aware of the Piltdown hoax, and I happened to be, I was still in high school, but I was down at the U of H campus one day up in the science department, and they had a huge display of all the skulls in a row, and right there in the middle was Piltdown Man. So, you know, and my uh, brash uh, arrogance of knowing it all at the age of 17, I went in and and um, I think it was like during the summer or something, and it happened that the chairman of the department was there, and I went in and I said, hey, you guys got Piltdown Man out here, and that was a hoax. Well, he told me I didn't know what I was talking about and to leave the building. But, see, arrogance is tenacious. Evolutionists continue to hold on to these just strands of of alleged evidence. In some cases, they continue to purport that which is known to be false. Uh, in this book called Prehistoric Life, published in 1969 by Harvard Press, the author writes, Unlike all other fossil men is Anthopus, that's the scientific name for Piltdown Man, known from a fragmentary skull and the right half of a lower jaw with two teeth, the first and second molars in place. The specimens were obtained by Mr. William Dawson from a small opening by the roadside at Piltdown in Sussex, England, and described by Sir Arthur Smith Woodward. It's difficult to determine their age for fragments of mammals characteristics of the Pliocene and Pleistocene era are mingled in the river-borne gravel. If contemporaneous with the most modern of them, Piltdown Man was probably not more recent than the third interglacial stage since hippopotamus and other subtropical animals occur with it. The skull is so fragmentary that those who studied it have been unable to agree as to the proper reconstruction. Estimates of its cranial capacity have varied from 1,079 cubic centimeters to 1,500 cubic centimeters, and an intermediate figure of about 1,300 cubic centimeters has finally been reached. It is not at all of the Neanderthal type, but has a high forehead like that of a modern man. He goes on and on and on. Notice all of this is built on nothing but a myth, but a hoax. And that just shows how they can take something that is fraudulent and just 
uh, wrap it around a tremendous amount of scientific language and continue to voice that on the pulpit, on the public, even though it has uh, already been proven to be false. Then another group of, of finds that uh, were popular back in the 70s to to uh, say were part of the background for the human race were the Ramapithecines. Ramapithecus is the singular. Now this was based on, notice, first of all, a jaw fragment that was discovered in 1937 in the Sawalik Hills of India, and it was originally given the name, because it was in India, of Brahmapithecus. But then, a couple of years later, Leakey, the very famous uh, anthropologist, and, uh, discovered a skull fragment in South Africa, which he could, not in the country in southern Africa, which he combined with that jaw fragment, and the species Ramapithecus was then born. Notice they take a, a jaw fragment from India and a skull fragment from Africa and link them together. In 1973, two evolutionists, Alan Walker and Peter Andrews, wrote an article in Nature magazine that the jaw of Ramapithecus, that was what was found in India, was that of a true ape. And by the mid-1970s, Ramapithecus was considered uh, as an ancestor to the orangutan, or ape, but was definitely not in the line of man. And yet you'll still find books today that have Ramapithecus in the lineage of man. Yet even after the mid-70s, when, he, when Ramapith, Ramapithecus is no longer in the human line, in 1982, Richard Leakey, the son of the famous anthropologist and, and a famous anthropologist and evolutionist in his own right, declared in a book called Human Origins that Ramapithecines are thought to be the group from which our ancestors evolved. So you see, they continue to hold on to these things and promote this as absolute evidence when it's not evidence of anything at all except their powerful imaginations. Then the last group I want to look at are the uh, Australopithecines. Well, it's not exactly the last group, but this is the most well-known group. They're also called Nut Nutcracker Man, and the Australopithecines have the ones that have gained probably the most uh, fame. Mary Leakey, who is another, uh, the daughter of the uh, famous anthropologist, was walking along a slope of a dig on a July morning in 1959 and noticed some brownish-black premolar teeth, the size of a monkey's or an ape, sticking out of the rocks. And it took 19 days to free the teeth and the other parts of a fossil pallet uh, out, of the, out of the rock. Now, the site where they were working contained more than 400 bone fragments in a 25-square-foot area. That's an area about 12 feet by, what would that be about? Oh, that would be about 25-foot square area. That would be, what, about 5 by 5, right? That's about the size of your closet at home. And they had over 400 bone fragments there. Uh, T.H. Kahn notes in his book, An Introduction to Hominology, that Australopithecus is a genus now generally agreed to be hominid, but it's not human. The most famous of these Australopithecines was a three-and-a-half-foot creature called Lucy. And allegedly, Lucy is the first creature to walk on two feet. She is allegedly the oldest ancestor uh, to man. And Lucy, theoretically, according to their view, resembles Homo sapiens in three ways. Her knee, her arm-to-leg length uh, ratio, and her left pelvic bone. But there are problems. That's what you'll find in the evolutionist textbook is, you know, she has the same kind of a knee, arm, leg length, etc. But the knee joint was found 60 to 80 meters. That's about 100 yards away from, uh, and, and uh, excuse me, it was found 100 yards deeper in the rock strata and almost a mile away from the rest of her. Now think about that. That's like saying that if you went out here and somebody had thrown a chicken bone out here, that you could say that was part of the same chicken you ate at Kentucky Fried Chicken a couple of days ago in Norwich. 
That's insane. But that's the basis for, for, for Lucy. So there are real problems with the knee. Secondly, her published arm-leg length ratio. Now, the reason that's important is because uh, a human being has an arm that is about 75% the length of, of the leg, whereas a, an ape has one that is longer than the leg. Now, her published arm-leg-length arm leg length ratio was 83.9%, which meant that her arm was 83.9% the length of her leg. So that's much longer than a normal, normal human. Uh, however, the leg bone was crushed in various places, and the pieces don't all fit together. So you can't get an accurate arm-leg ratio at all. It's just another guess. And then the third piece of evidence is the pelvic bone, and the pelvic bone is actually distorted as, it, as we have it, and it shows that Lucy probably walked on all fours and that she was a knuckle walker, and other quotes indicate that she was probably a, she was probably a climber. Now, in the article published in Science News, volume 100, November 27, 1971, we read, Australopithecus limb bone fossils have been rare finds. But Leakey now has a large sample. They portray Australopithecus as long-armed and short-legged. Notice how that differs from the, from the uh, uh, earlier analysis. He was probably a knuckle walker, not an erect walker, as many archaeologists presently believe. Furthermore, if Australopithecus... This is a quote, uh, further quote from the same article. If Australopithecus lived in the same region, occupied two million years before by the more highly evolved genus Homo, see, they, they found evidence now of, of others at the, that same time period that were more highly evolved, then uh, Johansson and his AFAR colleagues suggest it seems likely that the true man and the near man lived in the area, same area at the same time. All previous theories of the origin of the lineage which lead to modern man must now be totally revised. We must throw out many existing theories and consider the possibility that man's origins go back to well over 4 million years. And we don't know, they don't say this, but we don't know what those origins are. And that's the fact. Then there's Neanderthal man. This is the one that most of you are more, more familiar with. And about Neanderthal man, Isaac Asimov stated very clearly, quote, Give a Neanderthal man a shave and a haircut, dress him in well-fitted clothes, and he could probably, probably walk down New York's Fifth Avenue without getting much notice. In other words, Neanderthal man as well as Cro-Magnon man are now believed to be normal European homo sapiens, with the possibility that Neanderthal just suffered from rickets and arthritis. Nebraska man was another hopeful uh, missing link. That evidence came from the state of Nebraska. Evidence was built on one tooth, which was discovered in 1922. Then two years later, a skull was found in the same location, and the tooth fitted perfectly. But it was the skull of an extinct pig. So there you have eight different Eight different uh, contestants, all trying to be ancestors to man, and none of which fit. And yet, that's what most of us have been told, and we see it illustrated in all the magazines. And there is no evidence whatsoever that any of these are ancestors to man. There are various differences between men and apes. And while a ape or a chimpanzee may superficially resemble a man because he has two legs and he has certain appearances. He has a head and two arms and he looks quite a bit different from a dog or a cat. Uh, it, it would appear that they're, they're closely related. However, that's only superficial. For example, man has a permanent bipedal locomotion. That affects everything related to his, his uh, spinal cord, the relationship of his muscular uh, musculature, all of that is going to be quite different, whereas apes walk on all fours. Second, man has a big toe in line with his other toes. When you look down at your foot, all five toes line up together, and that big toe is pointing straight ahead just like the other four. But if you're an ape, 
that large toe is located on back toward the rear, toward your heel, and it's opposable just like the thumb on your hand so that he can grab branches and grab trees. And that that is what really explains the difference between an ape and a and a, a man, not the not the skull. And yet what are they looking for? What do they always come up with in the fossil finds? They always come up with skull fragments and jaw fragments, but we don't come up with the feet, which tells us whether it's an ape or a man. Man generally has a larger brain. Apes have smaller brain. The man, the head is balanced on the top of the spine, and for apes, the head is hinged in front of the spine, so that there is a radical difference in the way the head and neck attach uh, to the to the uh, to the spinal cord. The man is less mature at birth. Apes are more mature at birth. For example, a human baby is helpless for a long time, but within a short amount of time. An ape baby is able to climb trees, climb up on its mother's back, escape danger, and is able to survive. It's, you wonder how in the world a baby human could have survived in the, in, in the jungle. How would they have survived? What, and what, furthermore, what's the probability that that last set of ape parents would give birth to dizygotic twins, that is, a male and a female, so they could reproduce. I mean, if they just came up with a male or a female, there wouldn't be any reproduction or development, so they would have to come up with, with uh, male and female twins at the, at the same time. And then furthermore, we ought to ask, why do we still have so many species of apes and monkeys? Furthermore, there are more vertebrae in the back of a man than in an ape. Men have shorter arms. Apes have longer arms. Men have longer legs, whereas apes have longer legs. That's because they're bending over and walking on their knuckles. Uh, man has one type of hand. Go to the zoo sometime and notice the hand on a, on a chimpanzee or an orangutan. Look at the hand, and it's quite different from a man's hand. Uh, men have, human beings have 46 chromosomes, whereas apes have 48 chromosomes. All of this means that it would be virtually impossible for there to be uh, changes. So the question arises, where did these prehistoric men come from? Who are they? Um, the Most creationists agree that these were groups of fully human beings. I mean, the ones that, like, like Java Man and, and a few others that are clearly uh, human, Neanderthal, that these were groups of human beings that for some reason left the mainstream of civilization. They were ostracized for disease. They were rejected perhaps for crimes they committed or they underwent some other form of social rejection or perhaps they rebelled against the group and went somewhere. And over time, they degenerated socially from the main line of human development. See, under evolution, what you have socially is that man starts off in this primitive Stone Age state, and then they gradually improve. They gradually discover things. They gradually go forward. The picture you have in Scripture is that Adam is created probably the most uh, attractive, the most physically capable, and the most mentally agile human being that's ever existed because of sin everything's gone downhill since Adam he had an IQ that was probably three or four times the IQ of anybody who exists today but everything's deteriorated so you had civilization it wasn't long after the flood that you have men gathering together in disobedience to God at the Tower of Babel and building that well what happens when God divides the languages in these groups groups scattered, there were some groups that that were very small, and they went off on their own, and they migrated to different places, and they just sort of degenerated because they were separated, they didn't have access to technology, they were negative to God, and so they were under divine discipline, and so they end up, as very, because they got into spiritism and animism and demonism, they end up under divine discipline and degenerate as a as a tribal group, and they end up in various places in aboriginal parts of the world. So that explains the, where these Stone Age groups, our primitive men, uh, come from. Job actually makes reference to this in Job chapter 30, verses 1 through 8. 
Here Job says, But now those younger than I mock me, whose father's eye disdain to put with the dogs of my flock. In other words, he's talking about he's being ridiculed by these younger men, and their fathers weren't even, we would say, their fathers weren't good enough to, uh, to shine my shoes. I wouldn't put them with the dogs of my flock. Job verse uh, 30, verse 2, Indeed, what good was the strength of their hands to me? Vigor had perished from them. That's from his hands. From want and famine they are gone, who gnaw the dry ground by night and waste and desolation, who pluck mallow by the bush. He's talking about these uh, these groups. Indeed, what good was the strength of their hands to me? Vigor had perished from them. I actually identify that as his hands they, they, from, from these other people. They have, they've lost their vigor. They are in want. They're in famine. They uh, gnaw the dry ground by night in waste and desolation. Uh, Job 30, verse 4, They pluck mallow by the bushes, and whose food is the root of the broom shrub. So they've got a poor diet. They're not getting correct nutrition. They've got a, a vitamin deficiencies. This is going to be passed down from generation to generation. They're driven from the community. Uh, they shout against them as against a thief. Verse 6, so that they dwell in dreadful valleys, in holes of the earth and of the rocks. So this is a description. Remember, Job is from a period very early, probably before Abraham, during the time between Genesis uh, chapter 11 and Genesis chapter 12. So this could be a possible description of these groups of people who were uh, ostracized from the mainstream of civilization. So that answers the question of of, uh, monkeys and men and the alleged connection between the two. But then there's one other thing that I want to cover this evening, and that's mutation. See, the mechanism for advance in evolution from species to species, the development of new species and more advanced species, is the idea of mutations. That somehow through radiation, through the introduction of various uh, radioactivity or whatever it might be, whatever the agent might be, that it would produce mutations, and this would be something positive. Of course, my question is, if if, uh, that's something positive and mutations are considered something positive, why did everybody run from Three Mile Island when we had that little radioactive leak there? This theory of mutations is comes out of science and based on a lot of genetic theories that are not founded in actual fact. And many people assume and others teach that these are actual facts and that genetics demonstrates the progress of evolution. For example, Ernst Mayer, who is a professor at Harvard, says ultimately all variation is, of course, due to mutation. But we have to ask the question, is DNA really all that flexible? Remember, DNA is a nucleic acid that carries the genetic information. That's the key word there. It's the genetic information in the cell and is capable of self-replication. So that involves thousands of pieces of information. We saw last time that just for a spontaneous generation, just for a living cell with 1,500 pieces of information to spontaneously generate, had a probability of 1 in 10 to the 420th power. So, capable of self-replication synthesis of RNA. DNA consists of two long chains of nucleotides, and there's no, those, those chains have to fit together perfectly, and they contain, the, each chain of nucleotides contains thousands of pieces of information. Two long chains of nucleotides twisted into a double helix and joined by hydrogen bonds between the complementary bases adenine and thymine, or cystosine and guanine. The sequence of nucleotides determines individual hereditary uh, characteristics. So that's just to remind you what DNA actually is. DNA is the language of the cell. It is the computer program, so to speak, that makes the cell function. And the idea of mutation is that somehow by introducing something like radioactivity, you can change a Microsoft Word into WordPerfect. 
that's not going to happen. You have to have somebody who can properly order and organize the information correctly and restructure the, the information code. DNA provides the blueprint that reproduces the cells and all the information again so that that cell can in turn uh, reproduce. That means it's going to be producing at least 20 or more different proteins. Now the question that comes up logically is what comes first? It's a chicken or the egg thing. What comes first? If DNA is essential in the manufacturing process of proteins and the manufacturing process produces proteins that are essential to DNA, then you can't have DNA without proteins, and you can't have proteins without DNA. So if you can't have DNA without proteins or proteins without DNA, which comes first? They're dependent on each other. So the only way that it could work is if DNA and proteins both came into existence fully functional, interdependent at the exact same point in time. Further, since DNA is a language, it communicates information. It communicates thousands of pieces of data. Now, where did that information come from? Was it just the, all that information just the product of random chance? But random chance and cannot produce anything other than chaos. In normal, healthy organisms, for example, when you get into dealing with uh, mutation, in normal, healthy organisms, the DNA cannot be improved. It is what it's supposed to be. It's a normal, healthy organism. Everything is working. But natural selection, that is the idea of survival of the fittest, only explains why the normal, healthy organism survives. It's because it's a little more fit and a little healthier than other organisms. It doesn't explain, natural selection does not explain how it got there in the first place, only why it survives. It doesn't explain the arrival of the fittest, only the survival of the fittest. And you always get in these arguments with evolutionists, and they, they get so bloated and puffed up with arrogance, and they say, well, don't you believe in the survival of the fittest? As if that one little phrase is going to slay all the creationist dragons. And I always like to say, yeah, but how did it arrive in the first place? They don't know. So the question is, can a mutation produce new, healthier information? The problem with mutations is that when mutations do occur, geneticists say that 99.9% .9 of all mutations are harmful. One of the most prominent evolutionists at the forefront of of a study of mutations is Theodosius Dobzhansky. And Dobzhansky writes, the process of mutation is the only source of the raw materials of genetic variability and hence of evolution. The mutants which arise are, with rare exceptions, deleterious to their carriers. That means it's harmful. They can't survive. At least in the environments which the species normally encounters. In other words, it's going to be almost impossible to get anything positive that will want to be that you would want to carry on to the next generation. Now, Dubjansky spent his entire life and career working with mutations on fruit flies. I mean, he did all kinds of radioactive ex experiments on fruit flies, and he produced a lot of mighty strange fruit flies over the years. But when it was all over with, guess what? They were still fruit flies. They hadn't changed in any, anything else. Dr. James Crow, who is professor of genetics at University of Wisconsin, writes uh, that about uh, mutations that mutants would usually be detrimental. For a mutation is a random change of a highly organized, reasonably smoothly functioning living, living body. A random change in the highly integrated system of chemical processes which constitute life is almost certain to impair it, just as a random interchange of connections in a television set is not likely to improve the picture. Just blindfold yourself. Take your computer. Blindfold yourself. Open up the computer box and just reach inside and move a few wires around and see if that improves the working of your computer. Sometimes we think so. With the failure of, um, since mutations produce something abnormal, they make it more difficult rather than less difficult for this species to survive. The point is, 
If survival of the fittest explained the arrival of the fittest, then mutations should cause uh, should not cause extinctions, but improved species. If the survival of the fittest explained the arrival of the fittest, then mutations uh, should not cause extinctions, but an improved species. But the fact is that there are more extinctions going on today, and there is no evidence of improved species anywhere. Lauren Isley, the famous evolutionist from the University of Pennsylvania, writes, With the failure of these many efforts to prove evolution to be true, science was left in the somewhat embarrassing position of having to postulate theories of living origins which it could not demonstrate. After having chided the theologian for his reliance on myth and miracle, science found itself in the unenviable position of having to create a mythology of its own, namely the assumption that what after long effort could not be proved to take place today, had in truth taken place in the primeval past. In other words, he admits it's all mythology. There's no fact to support it. Now next time we've looked next time, now that we've looked at the basic assumptions and problems last time, we've looked at monkeys, men and mutations this time, I want to wrap up our study on creation and evolution and by Focusing on the dating question, what about carbon-14 dating, potassium-argon dating, various forms of radiometric dating? What is the evidence that the earth is young as opposed to old? And I'm going to bring in some evidence that we haven't gone over in, in the past. And that will wrap up this little three-week sub-series on creation and evolution. And then following that, we will proceed in Genesis and with the second section starting in Genesis chapter 2 verse 4 with our heads bowed and our eyes closed father we thank you for the study of your word and study of these issues making us realize how how technical how detailed your creation is that these things could not be the result of chance they didn't just happen life is not just something that oops there it was and and we just happened to be here but there's a plan there's a purpose there's a planner and there is a intelligent designer, that you have created us with a purpose in mind. And even though the human race failed and fell, you provided a perfect solution in Jesus Christ. And that because we are all created in your image, we all have value and significance for Christ died for all. Father, we pray that you would strengthen our faith, challenge us with the things that we've studied. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.